Every engineer in some capacity is a product person. They're always making trade-offs about what matters and what doesn't matter because nothing's ever fully specified. Otherwise, your product people would be your engineering team. Really focus in on doing an end-to-end proof of concept before you polish anything. Like if you can't go from someone can install this to see data they care about, do not focus on any subsystem until you've achieved a sort of a lightning bolt path from uh, start to finish. Because until you can demonstrate that, you really aren't even anywhere close to an MVP and everything else is a distraction. My name is Aaron White and I'm the CTO and founder of Blissfully. This is Code Story a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Aaron White created a way for you to get a handle on your IT landscape. All this and more on Code Story. Aaron White started coding when he was young, tinkering on his Commodore 64 when he was sent to his room, typing in the esoteric commands just to get the game to run. He was a big Magic the Gathering player when he was young, and his parents pushed him towards working for a startup. Coming from a family of creators, he was sort of the black sheep since he wasn't painting or doing something with physical creative elements. He started coding professionally in his mid-teens and has kept at it ever since attending college to study computer science and making all sorts of things in the interim. He currently lives in New York with his girlfriend and enjoys a life of professional and personal flexibility. When attempting to start an IT consulting firm, he noticed that there was not a good way to show a company their IT landscape, what your app inventory was, who uses what, etc. So he built a tool to do just that to help with lead gen for his firm. When it started to spread like wildfire, he figured out this was more than a lead gen tool. This is the creation story of Blissfully. The problem that we've seen is that if you're trying to understand what your IT infrastructure is, which is to say, you know, who are the people in my company? What apps are we using? Who's using them? What are we paying? Are we actually even using them? What does our technology landscape look like? There's actually no good way to answer that. And we found this out because my co-founder and I set out to create an IT consulting firm. We we just found this over and over and over again. We try to talk to people about, you know, what does your company look like technologically? What tools are you using? How can we make you better? Everybody was interested in being better, but nobody really understood what it was they had, what their inventory was. So as a bit of a lead gen tool, we built the first version of the product. So I don't know if you're familiar with HubSpot's website grader, but that was essentially our inspiration. They built this beautiful app. You plug in your website. They would tell you all the different you know, ways in which you can improve the website experience for your users, for SEO. Just a great way to provide value for free into the world and then get you know, users and, and warm leads in return. And we thought we'd do something similar for our IT services. We would build this tool that would automatically ferret out the people, the apps, the relationships, present it to potential customers, and then over time work to convert them to our services. Well, when we built that and we started kind of giving it away to a few friends in Boston, it quickly went from 10 companies using it the first week to 20 companies using it the second week to 40 companies using it the third week. And we realized, well, so much for this being a lead gen tool. This is itself a a whole software product and a company. We really think of ourselves as an IT platform. 
all the things that IT tries to do for an organization, which essentially is leveraging technology to make your people more effective. It has to do with how do you onboard people when they're hired into the right technology? How do you remove them from that tech when they move on to their next company? How do you properly evaluate vendors, deploy those vendors, get them integrated into your, your you know, broader uh, infrastructure? That's stuff that IT does all day, every day, metering those relationships out and making sure everything runs you know, smoothly, securely, and, and compliantly, if that's a word. And we help with all of that. If you have a system of truth, if you've got that record of what is, then you can use all that context to really inform and even in some cases automate much of what IT does. Let's dive into that first product, that MVP. Tell me about you know how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. So the first version took us about a month and a half to get something kind of just demonstrating proof of concept. The way in which it works is we have a G Suite Marketplace app. You install us, we use G Suite APIs to get much of this data and, and unify it into the single view. And I chose a few different tools for that first version. They've actually since then formed the foundation for the entire tech stack here at the company, which is super interesting. But I always like to make one or two technical bets when starting a new project. A, because I love learning, and B, because I'm always hunting for leverage. And so in the case of Blissfully, the, the two pieces of technology I leaned into was first AWS Lambda, even the MVP day one of this project was on serverless. And the rationale for that was I have to build an MVP. It's got to process a ton of data. I don't have time to be worrying about containers and Kubernetes clusters, health checks, scaling issues, load balancers, failovers. None of that's really value add to what I'm trying to build right now. So I leaned into Lambda, even though it was fairly early. The second piece of technology that I used was a front-end language called Elm. And Elm is a statically typed functional programming language that happens to compile JavaScript. Uh, and you can make really robust UIs uh, and front-ends for your applications. And that one was partially a philosophical one. I, I have a, a deep appreciation for how much types can enable teams to coordinate and move fast. I was also fascinated with, you know, such an ambitious way to build front ends, given that the world of JavaScript is, you know, highly mutable and, and uh, procedural. And this was just a very different way of doing things. Uh, and those were the first two tech bets uh, to help me build the MVP faster. Lambda, so I didn't have to worry about scalability issues. And Elm, so I didn't have to worry about things breaking on me as I was moving fast, uh, because it's a lot for, you know, one or two people to build an entire product in, in six weeks. As you're building an MVP, and I love it that you love building MVPs. That's a that's spoken like a true tech guy. For the MVP, you gotta you gotta make certain decisions and trade offs to cut features or build it in such a such a way that you can move fast and things aren't going to break. And you mentioned some of those, but dive into those a little more. What other sort of decisions and trade offs did you have to make in the short term, and how did you cope with those? Well, let me let me start with Lambda. You know, the, the trade-offs for using a technology like that, and this was, I think, four years ago at this point, was it was brand new. And while I knew I wouldn't be dealing with all the complexities of maintaining containers and clusters, some of which I had done in, in previous projects, there are a lot of unknowns, right? How, how do you build a system on serverless? Where do you draw the lines between projects? How many functions should you have? How granular should those functions get? Are you really just maintaining hundreds of tiny little microservices? And isn't that kind of a, you know, a nightmare? 
those were all very real considerations and real issues. And, th and those trade-offs were especially real four years ago when all the patterns that you can you know, dig up now just didn't exist, right? People were figuring it out. Where do you install queues between things? How do you manage deployment? Is it kind of deploy one function or deploy them all? All that stuff was sort of discovered as I went, but it really did simplify the first couple of tasks, which was trying to only focus on the stuff that's unique value to the customers, which is the code, not the, the infrastructure or the code that creates the infrastructure. That can come later, right? I just need to beeline it to, can I process this data? Uh, and can I do it fast to create a, you know, kind of a delightful onboarding experience? And so really tried to keep it simple. I knew there were a ton of unknowns. So I went for, you know, one function to rule them all. It did many different things, but I could spin it up in sequence. I could spin it up in parallel, different parameters would drive it to do different things uh, and really learn slowly by building very cautiously. Uh, the net result was a fast product, but sort of building slowly with respect to going too deep into Lambda's idiosyncrasies. So that was one technique to kind of dip my my toes in the water and make sure that I was getting the leverage that I was after and not geeking out on the new cool tool. Because that's a fairly common trap that I've certainly fallen into enough that I know not to fall into it anymore. The use case for Elm, as I mentioned earlier, was largely around types. I know there's a lot of you know, uh, strong feelings about dynamic versus static programming language. But the idea there was, I don't really know CSS. I've never gotten good with it. I don't really trust my ability to create bulletproof code in browsers. Here's a tool that has a, at the language level can stop me from making mistakes, can force my refactors to deal with all the cruft that would have otherwise accumulated and keep me honest. And even had a, a library called LMUI, which obviated CSS entirely. So you could express layout in language level primitives, which was a, a huge advantage to me as someone who is really terrible at CSS. You know, the trade-offs there were actually a little bit a little bit more scary. If we built on Elm, I knew it would be much easier for me to maintain and move fast in the early days. But I had serious concerns whether if this thing evolved into a project we'd want to maintain, and uh, would I be able to find people to work in this language, which again was you know fairly new and, and not so popular. Would we be able to move fast, given that the JavaScript and React ecosystem just has so many wonderful libraries? That one I can't say that I put quite as much thought into up front. That one I, I learned over time where those boundaries actually fell. But for the purposes of an MVP, it was really magical to just know that this was something I could move fast in and, and kind of, again, kill a whole class of errors that I would otherwise have to think about. And then the last little thing we threw into the mix was GraphQL, which uh, that was just a fantastic way to build an API that, again, helped through the power of schema and types really ensure that what you were building was not broken either on the back end or the front end. So when building MVPs, you know, make some technical bets, do understand the trade-offs, don't get excited about the technology. Your North Star is a product experience. And I think that the two most important things to get to that goal the fastest are setting up an automated build system so that you can kind of get in the flow and stay in the flow uh, and get infrastructure out of the way as fast as possible. And then really focusing in on doing an end-to-end -end proof of concept before you polish anything. Like if you can't go from someone can install this to see data they care about, do not focus on any subsystem until you've achieved a sort of a lightning bolt path from uh, start to finish. Because until you can demonstrate that, you really aren't even anywhere close to an MVP and everything else is a distraction.
That's good advice. And I definitely agree with the set up your DevOps, set up your infrastructure, and then build it end to end. That makes a ton of sense. So then the next step, you've got your MVP, you've built it. How did you progress the product from there? How did you mature the product? And I'm, I'm really interested in how you built out your roadmap from there. What was the next thing to build that was most important and how did you decide that? The next thing to do after you get your MVP, no matter how ugly, is to get users into it. And, and essentially, I think it all boils down to like, what's the critical path for understanding truly what the opportunity for the product is, what the hole in the market might be. Uh, so if you're operating in a vacuum with a working product, but you don't have users, you're, you're still you're still failing. So we got users in there very, very rapidly. And I happened to have a couple of companies that I was really close to and friendly with and you know had this problem. So we had our first three or four different organizations willing to install us. And in fact, we lined them up before we finished the MVP, which is, I think, you know, a really important thing to do. Otherwise, if you can't describe it to somebody to line them up for your alpha or your beta, then you certainly have no business building it. So we had those folks ready to go. We got them in there. And honestly, I think there's a real difference between when you build something people care about and when you build something people don't care about. And I've experienced this both sides many times over the years. So in this case, the moment we had people install it, I was getting emails back from, oh my God, I didn't realize we had so many different applications and we were spending so much money and you just saved me $600 a month because you found this subscription that you know we didn't realize was tied to somebody who left the company four months ago. And when people get that excited about the findings you're presenting them, honestly, the users just started giving us reams of feedback of things they would like to see in the application. Uh, the challenge wasn't then figuring out what the possibility space to build next was. It was truly in prioritizing it. And so there, I think it really comes down to a little bit more of like a business product question of what are you trying to be when you grow up? And not letting yourself do a total uh, hill climbing expedition based on what customers are telling you, but really balancing that with what's, what's your end goal? Where do you see that a stable company can exist and survive? That's a hard thing to figure out early on. I mean, I had the benefit that this wasn't my first company. This is company number four for me. And I also spent some time in venture capital and I'm on the board of another company I started that's that's still in operation. So I've had a lot of experience building MVPs, building companies, seeing what sticks and, and what can exist as an independent business. So for us, it was really the same realization that got us into IT in the first place, which was SaaS is massively transforming how companies are built. Anybody in the company can make decisions about technology. There's a product for every niche. It's just woven throughout organizations in a way that 10, 20 years ago definitely wasn't. And it's still got a long way to go. I think what's kind of surprising for folks is that, you know, we all use SaaS apps every day and we think, oh, it's the world's SaaS now. It's, it's here to stay. I think, you know, estimates put us at maybe 15 to 25% in the, the sort of cloud appification of infrastructure for companies. So there's still a lot of room to grow. So our North Star was the role of IT is going to dramatically change from being the gatekeepers and the technical enablers to being more of the what's the business process and how do we find the right leverage and give it to people throughout the organization? Like it's going to transform from more of a technical role to one of more business operations. And so our North Star was everything we do, we want to understand how does this help future IT that is more business operations. So if it got too technical, if it got too financy, those were wonderful pieces of inspiration from our customers of what we could do. But we actually really try to balance that with, in the future, people who are deploying SaaS apps, what are their concerns? And that got us really quickly to things like inventorying, vendor management, on and offboarding, granting access to folks, 
reviewing security and compliance, focusing on those things. And it put other things aside, doing really technical deep scripting or going really kind of nuanced and geeking out on the, the accounting uh, and kind of finance concerns that we have plenty of that in our product. You know, but we knew our, our user was these, these forward thinking IT teams. I don't know that I've quantified it recently, but we've helped people save a lot of money. I think the trick there is, you know, when we help finance teams, when we help IT teams helping finance teams, it's more about understanding the operational problems in IT that led to that waste, rather than doing deep reporting on the dollars wasted in this given period very, you know, specifically, right? That's less valuable than plugging the IT operational holes that got you into that problem space in the, in, you know, in the first place. So let's switch to team. So tell me how you built your team. And what I'm specifically looking for is what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Love this question, because I think if for any tech leader that ends up building a product that's scaling 100% of your time at some point becomes team. And, you know, that's where I find myself right now as the company continues to grow. I think in the early days, if you can find people you trust and you've worked with that share that lightning bolt mentality, those are the folks you want to work with really early on. So I have always tried to look for folks with a demonstrated track record of ideating their own product, building it, shipping it, and getting users for it. Whether that's a iPhone app they made or an open source library for some new technology they have. That's always been my, my go-to proxy for people that are really fantastic team members for an early stage tech team. Reason being is you're just gonna be building a ton. Not all of it's gonna survive the test of time. You certainly don't have a whole product team specking stuff out for you and deciding what's important and what's not. Talking to customers you know, on your behalf or setting that up. It's really the engineering team is kind of also the product team. And this is something I, I believe is true at all scales, which is that every engineer in some capacity is a product person. They're always making trade-offs about what matters and what doesn't matter. Either you know the experience for their fellow coders who will be building on the infrastructure they're making or for the end user, because nothing's ever fully specified. Otherwise your product people would be your engineering team. So I've always had a bent for folks that had that, that, that product mindset, that urgency, uh, had demonstrated it in some way, uh, and then preference to folks that I had worked with previously, uh, because you know you've got a rapport, you know you know how much you can drive them or how to work with them properly, or you know when to let people be and put their heads down and start running. Well, as you step out onto the balcony and you look across all you've built with blissfully, what are you most proud of? Well, the team, <laughs> definitely it's the team. We have some really amazing people on it. A couple of key folks stand out to me. Why well, would they all stand out to me? So I guess it's just which is most easily digestible in, in a conversational format. You know, there's some great folks in the team that I worked with at the last startup that my co-founder and I built. They signed up to work with us a second time. And that's just hugely heartwarming that they enjoyed working with each other and with us so much that they were willing to, to, to do it all over again, knowing how hard startups are, especially as we all age and have family. They've got small kids. It's, it's a, a little bit more of a, a, a decision to be made. So I'm super proud of that. I'm proud of the younger talent that we found early on who were new in their career, hadn't really finished school or, or had a you know a LinkedIn resume to point at, but just were incredibly talented. And, and we were able to, to work with some really great folks so early on. And then as we've grown, we're now pulling folks from the Elm community, which has just been fantastic. That community has been such a treasure trove of smart, 
product-minded, friendly people. It's it's a little bit of an, an oasis. And every time we engage that community in you know either an open source way or collaborative way or joining the team full time, that's been really rewarding. So so team is number one for sure. I think the second thing that I'm really proud of is how much this team has done over the last couple of years. You know, I mentioned we are this IT platform and that's no no joke. We have cover a lot of different use cases and surface area for IT teams. There are many different things we can do. It's not a point solution. It's a, a suite of things that come together to kind of orient how IT does work. I don't think we would have been able to do that had we not been making really smart technical decisions about our architecture and the way we do things as a team in terms of producing code, both standing on great processes, standing on fantastic technologies to really lever up over and over. I think we've struck a really great balance between forward investment to give ourselves those capabilities, as well as getting stuff done for the customer in the moment, which obviously is the burning number one priority in any startup. So you have to kind of fight for that space to, to make things you know for yourself for the future. But those are the things that I'm proud of, for sure. Well, let's flip the script just a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, let me start with team building, right? So back to the thing that makes great tech is great tech teams and great organizations that produce great tech teams. I think you can make mistakes with people and it's the most painful mistake you'll ever make because you will be stressing about it constantly in the background if you realize that you're not a good fit for this person and they're not a good fit for you, but you kind of want to give them another chance. There's always that one more thing you think that you did wrong that is preventing them from really shining. And that may be the case, but I would argue in you know 99% of cases, if you're feeling that way, probably they're just not a good match for the company. And it's not about them, and it's not exactly about you. It's about that mutual fit. The mistake is not that you hired them. That happens. The mistake is how long you sit on that before you kind of openly acknowledge with one another, hey, this isn't working. We need to part ways. It's for the best for both of us. And we're sorry we made this mistake, and it was great working with you, but but this is this is going to be a better path forward. We have made the mistake where we've sat on making that decision for too long. And I've made that mistake so many times over the last you know, 10, 15 years. It's just something that is always, uh, that it's really hard to see clearly in the moment and move fast. But the faster you move on those feelings, the better. Um, so that's one mistake we've made. Uh, we've made plenty of technical mistakes and I could, <laughs> I could write a book about those. All sorts of bizarre errors. I think the, the key thing there is just making sure that when you fix mistakes, you're not just fixing the mistake, you're fixing the thing that led to the mistake. It's very similar to the ethos of our product, right? We're not just fixing your IT problems, we're fixing the IT processes that led to those problems. So that could be everything from you didn't invest in testing and you don't have a culture where you create enough testing. I would say that's something that took us a long time to get right, to not dealing with bugs right when they come in and letting them fester. You know, that can cause all sorts of issues for your customers and for yourselves as you go further and further away from the thing that produced that error. So being really mindful of when you're solving a problem, at least come up with a theory of what led to that problem in the first place. And if you haven't done that, you really don't understand the problem. Building technology, you're always up to your your elbows and issues with, with tech. And that's what that's why we have jobs and security. But the hiring, firing stuff is is always challenging. Yeah, and we've had some close calls on on the tech side for sure. You know, I mentioned earlier that Elm was a, a, a much more of a gamble f- for us uh, up front. I wasn't sure it was going to be able to scale, to be able to find great people, or that we wouldn't kind of cut ourselves off from all this technical leverage. And for a while there, you know, it was pretty dicey. It was unknown. But eventually, you know, I think we lucked out and found the right patterns that enable us to kind of have the best of all worlds. Plus, the community has just been fantastic. 
So there are also bullets dodged along the way, which are, you know, the things that let me sleep at night. Because for the first two years of building this thing, I did not sleep at night. Uh, just constant panic about one thing or another crumbling while I slept. <laughs> Thankfully, a lot of that subsided. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? You know, we have really big ambitions for the product. As I mentioned, you know, we think of ourselves as a platform for IT and IT does a lot. I think anything that we can do to help IT teams really go from organizations where they're viewed more as a cost center, as something to kind of keep the ship from leaking and kind of apply WD-40 to all the gears, to something that's really an enabler. That's our, our, you know, the kind of product we want to build. That's not a problem just for the IT team, right? So we provide them a solution, but IT teams have to engage their entire company. Every person in the company touches IT whether it's a brand new hire to someone who needs access to someone evaluating a new piece of technology to you know finance, to security, to compliance, everybody ends up interacting with IT. So a lot of what I think is gonna to happen to our product over time is enabling more use cases, adding more automations to speed up the ones we have, but also critically making sure that our product is something attractive and fun and helps IT engage the rest of the org and not feel like some sort of perfunctory, awful enterprise system from, you know, 10, 15 years ago, because you can kind of get away with that if your buyer is one person, but your users are a different set of people. That can make for good businesses, but it makes for terrible product experiences. We want to hold ourselves to a much higher standard. So really making IT more of a team sport for the entire organization in a delightful, pleasant way, hence the name Blissfully, that's something that we're going to keep investing in. Uh, and then on the team side, you know, we're growing the team and, you know, I'm I'm hiring for another five people right now. So, you know, always happy to meet new smart folks who really are product builders. And it's a fun opportunity for our team because we have so much service area and the company is still so young, but but is growing. There's a lot of a lot of impact engineers can have here, both in terms of just tech and even the product experience itself. Let's flip to you, Aaron. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. Well, I think the first person that really influenced my understanding of, of code was one of the first people who ever hired me. So this is when I was a pimply teenager wearing a suit, showing up at a software company that kind of laughed at me because who wears a suit? Uh, they took a chance on me and you know I was one of the the maybe the youngest intern they had ever had there and was able to kind of rise through the different projects. This is a company called Numega. Uh, they were writing debugging software for device drivers, for operating systems, um, really low level, powerful stuff. They let me rise through the different projects based on my skill set and not based on my, my age. And that was just really rewarding. So much so that, you know, when I went to college and, and was looking for an internship, the founder had left uh, a man named Frank Grossman, was one of the two founders, had left to start a new venture. And I immediately went and joined him. And, you know, getting a chance to work with him as the, the CTO and, you know, kind of the, the first author of much of the code was just really eye-opening to what made good code, right? It was a lot about that lightning bolting to show value. I learned reams and reams of good techniques for debugging and really kind of holding yourself uh, accountable. Grit, just being able to solve things without having to, the capability to ask anybody. There was no Google. There was nobody else in the room, no one else in the world trying to do what we were doing in that startup. And that was just a life skill that I'm glad I got when I did because I think it's, it's a hard thing to teach people grit later on. And then there are folks that I follow online that just really hold the bar high in any number of different dimensions, right? So you look at like Tim Sweeney, 
you know, I remember when, you know, Epic was making tiny little games that I was trying to play on my, you know, DOS PC, emailed him and he wrote back to a stranger. And as a kid, this was like, you know, just an amazing experience to be written by someone that, you know, was making the video games you were playing. And to watch his rise through code, through product, to, you know, really being a mastermind of business and just knowing that you can always push yourself to learn more. Don't ever stagnate. Always keep learning. Kind of like be a shark in the learning waters. If you've stopped, you're screwing up in some way. And that's been true for, you know, a number of other folks that I follow. Is it, uh, you know, John Carmack from, you know, id Software and, and all the way up through, you know, doing VR and rockets and just being someone who's incredibly deeply technical on so many different topics. It's just been, you know, eye-opening to what excellence looks like and kind of keeps me always interested in learning more. Well, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think the thing that I've, I've, I now understand much better than I used to is that persistence and perseverance matter. Ideas don't matter, but perseverance does matter. Obviously you need a, a sound enough idea to get going, but really no matter what you have, if you force yourself to show something to people, get feedback and iterate on the feedback, you will find your way to something interesting over time. And the only way to fail is to not be open to feedback, not put yourself out there uh, and give up too early. Obviously there are dead end projects and you know that's a whole other story about how to know when you're in one of those. But there are a lot of things that I started over the years that got interesting early traction and then I kind of gave up on them and got distracted and interested by something else because I didn't think it would make it or I wasn't quite sure of myself. And looking back, all of those, I think I can point to a, you know plenty of large companies today that if you squint kind of look like that. And I'm not saying I would have ended up like any of those kind of really successful companies, but certainly the one thing that you could look at that separated me from them objectively was they stuck with it. And so really it's not just about grit for solving code problems, it's grit around taking critical feedback, always putting yourself out there, being uncomfortable uh, and sticking with something uncomfortable until you find a couple of things that work and then just repeatedly doubling down on them. And so if I'd gotten started earlier in my career with that mindset, I think you know many more interesting things would have happened. I'm not upset with all the things I've built, but that's probably the thing that took me uh, the longest to internalize that ended up being the most valuable. Laren, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you, to show it off to the world. What advice would you give that person having gone down this road? They should let me invest and advise. That would be the, the first thing I would <laughs> I would tell them. Uh, well, if they've got the next big thing and they've got the passion and it makes sense to me, I think that's just phenomenal. I would share a couple of pieces of advice with them. One is protect your passion, your project, and your opportunity by only working with the best people. If you don't feel it in your bones that this person is so good that you ask yourself, how did I get so lucky to be working with them? they're probably not the right person. Surround yourself with people like that. And I think if you've got a project that's working like that, get really good at telling the story and the narrative. I think all things in life ultimately come down to how compelling you can make something that you can communicate to another human. And if that doesn't work, it doesn't matter how good your product is. So surround yourself with great people and become a master of telling your story because no one else will. And if you can't pull it off, then you know that's uh, you found your ceiling. Um, so constantly be improving those two, those two things. Well, that's great advice. 
Well, Aaron, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Blissfully. Yeah, thank you, Noah, for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.